feels to me as if people are here a little early, so we might as well start. (laughs) There's this little cartoon that I have of a couple walking outside of a sanctuary or or church, and, um, and one person is saying to the other, how can I love my enemies when I don't even like my friends? And I like that because it starts with the word how. And this is what I love about our tradition and our lineage. Because it's not just about talking about aspiration. It's about offering different paths and options in which um, those aspirations can manifest. And that... Um, whether you like your friends or not, the possibility is is that kindness can be there in spite of that. That the Dharma is a path to freedom and that um, uh, and that there are so many what is said is that there are 84,000 doors into into the teachings. And really, so there are so many opportunities for us to connect. And so the invitation is for us to um, feel which door is most open to us, given the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of each of our lives, because that is what is said each human life comprises of, that there is no human life that is only about the 10,000 joys, and no life that is about just the 10,000 sorrows. But it takes courage, that word that we've been um, offering um, with quite some frequency. It takes courage to live both through the sorrows, which have pain and suffering, as well as the joys, because the joys inevitably end. And this courage of living, this, this heart of living, I'd like to weave the theme and the practice of forgiveness. First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. Those who are devoid of the power to forgive are devoid of the power to love. That's another a quotation from Dr. Martin Luther King. It takes courage and effort to look into our hearts for the capacity to forgive. It takes both our mindfulness practice and our loving kindness practice. And whether you're in the position of requesting for forgiveness or offering forgiveness, it really is a relational process. Sometimes it may feel like an internal experience coming to terms with a difficult situation or difficult person. But it's ultimately about our relationship to the humanity of ourselves and all the beings around us. What Heather was referring to, this, this commonality, this, 
this peace that we have as being part of the universal family. So I, the words that, that, that are chosen are quite specific around um, asking for your forgiveness as opposed to, and I'm going to make a distinction which is, may sound subtle, but it's in my, in my heart it's slightly different than I apologize. Right? Because I am sorry or that I apologize isn't that isn't as relational as I ask for your forgiveness. And so there's a distinction, of course, between the act and the person that we're, that, um, uh, that we're inviting uh, our practice to feel into. That forgiveness is not about condoning or redeeming or pardoning or absolving or excusing, or even forgetting, you know, that, that phrase, forgive and forget. All those are activity fo- that are focused on the act that was harmful. Forgiving is about our intention towards the person who has harmed us. How do I hold that person involved in this situation? Do I hold that person to be a human being like, like myself or another object that is so easily dismissed? Dr. King goes on and says, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains a barrier to the relationship. In Pali, the word forgiveness is kama, K-H-A-M-A, meaning the earth. A heart and mind that is unshakable like the earth with its intention to create non-harm. Even when we've experienced harm. So when you forgive me for harming you, you are aware and you have a choice. You choose a path that leads to less suffering, which is deciding, which is making a choice not to harm or to seek revenge. And you don't have to like me and you don't even have to offer me metta that's not necessarily a part of the practice of forgiveness, although it's helpful. You simply lift yourself up from this quagmire that we call retribution, which is the endless cycle of suffering that we can also call samsara. It is a gift that you can give both of us, and you can do it totally on your own, I don't have to know about it. I don't even have uh, have to understand it. So the formal practice of forgiveness generally is offered in three directions. 
And in my own practice, I've added a fourth. So that's something that I'll share at the end. So the four directions are forgiving self, forgiving oneself. We start with ourselves just like the loving kindness practice. We ask for forgiveness from others that, that, um, that we may have harmed. The third direction is forgiving others who have harmed us. And the fourth direction that really sort of completes the practice for me is really forgiving the reality of the first noble truth which is that there's suffering in this life. That, that there is pain that is created that, that isn't located with any person or place. So in the first direction, forgiving self, may I forgive myself, is, the, is one of the... Um, um, phrases that is used. Because so often we are our own harshest critic, right? And this has come up in many of our practice discussions that, that um, the judgment comes up so quickly. And when you think about it in your own experience, um, if, for example, there's an illness that you're, you're having, you know, there's something wrong with with you and and often I know that even there's a there's a tendency to for example if you have to um, work for a livelihood you'll go to work in spite of the fact that that you're ill and and sort of white knuckle your way through it because otherwise you're not you're not good enough it can happen in a meditation period in which you know, we, we go through so many different states, some of them blissful and calm, and some of them not so. And when, when those agitated or sleepy or um, um, uh, angry states that arise, what we want are those calm, blissful states because we think that that's the practice. And we think that something is wrong with the practice. Or we think that something is wrong with us. And when we're having those difficult mind states of whether it's irritation or anger or even depression, there's a way in which we can feed those, those states of mind. If, if any of you have actually gotten angry at, at anger, or depressed at your depression. And so even in the invitations around loving kindness as well as mindfulness, you know, what the, the words are that are offered are, if the judgment arises, is it possible to simply meet that without needing it to be anything other than it is? Is it possible to not judge the judgment that arises? Is it possible to simply meet it tenderly? And in that moment, you're actually beginning to dissolve the judgment. 
Whereas if the judgment arises and we push it away because we think that it's, you know, it's an indication that we're a, a bad person or a bad meditator, we can see how it feeds that energy. We're pouring gasoline on the fire. You just have to open the newspaper to know how, um, how hard and difficult some of our experiences are in life. And many of us work in helping professions or, or um, are in service of others. And, and the needs are getting greater. They're not getting less. And how do we navigate and practice in a world that is really hard and difficult without our hearts becoming hard and difficult. So there's the teaching that the Buddha offered around the two arrows, that often there is suffering and pain in the world. That's the first arrow that, that, that we experience. But often, instead of going to the cause of that suffering or the cause of that arrow, we judge it, we um, ruminate about it, we um, wonder why, why, it's, why it's happening, and we actually shoot another arrow into our own experience. This is an additional level of suffering that doesn't actually have to be there. And this is this radical aspect of kindness that, that, that we actually begin to recondition our experience with suffering in the world. So when I was a monastic in Thailand, um, we're required to, at the beginning of the retreat, we invoked five precepts as a way of creating safety for the community. As a monastic, um, I was uh, uh, called to invoke 227. <laughs> and there is no way that I could even know what I was getting into, <laughs> much less remember them. And so, really, practically, I was breaking precepts all the time. <laughs> Because I didn't know what my, you know, I didn't know them all. Um, I eventually read the Vinaya while I was a monk, but certainly as a as a novice monk, part of your pra- part of my practice was making these mistakes and then looking at how to let that go, forgiving myself. And so one of the classic um, aspects of uh, being a monastic is the robes that you wear. That's the, that's the symbol of the teachings. It's not so much the person, but the robes are what is, what is the sacred container. And, and so how you wear these robes is like walking into an origami project. <laughs> and so in the first couple of weeks as a monk, you know, my fellow monks would come up to me and just rearrange my clothes <laughs> without my permission. Not that they needed it, but it was like no judgment, just 
you know, fixing it. The judgment was coming up in here. Oh my God, I did it again. <laughs> Towards the end of my ordination, I did receive what I felt to be the highest compliment. And uh, uh, when a, a Thai um, practitioner, uh, who I don't, I don't understand Thai, but anyway, they mentioned to one of the teachers who spoke English um, that uh, he wears his robes well. <laughs> and so this process of, of forgiving ourselves for our mistakes can be supported by exactly what Heather was addressing and, and, and describing so beautifully last night yesterday afternoon, in recognizing your own merit. Recognizing the goodness that you've done for yourself and others and referring back to what Silvio was talking about that very first night, that the natural movement of the heart is towards kindness. That means the natural movement of the heart is towards goodness regardless of the life you've lived. Who would you be and what would you do if you were never separated from that sense of goodness and wholeness? What possibilities could you live? That's the invitation. The Buddha said the birth in this human form is so precious. It's so precious, the metaphor that's the story that's given is that you have this vast ocean in which you have this gigantic sea turtle that comes up for air once every hundred years. And floating on top of this vast ocean is this ring. And the chances of being born in a human life are the chances of the turtle's head popping through the center of the ring every hundred years. The Buddha didn't say that men are more precious than women. He didn't say that people who have more power are more precious than people who have less power. He didn't say people of a certain culture were more precious than other cultures. He didn't say that people who are less angry are more precious than people who have anger. He said that all beings, all human beings, have a precious life because we have the capacity to awaken. We have the capacity to forgive. The second direction is asking for forgiveness from others from harm that we may have caused. I ask for your forgiveness. in acknowledging 
our own imperfections, our own humanity. We let go of the perfection that we think we need, that we think we want, that we think will create happiness in our lives. And instead, the invitation is to turn towards, the mindfulness turning towards those imperfections, which really is vulnerability. It's really opening. It's really that, that place of kindness. All of us have received injuries in our life and all of us have caused them as well. So asking for forgiveness from others, one preliminary practice is just to do an exchange of self for other. When we injure others, we can remember how has it felt when it's happened to us? I mean, isn't this one of the primary teachings we give our youngsters when they're growing up? Is, is if they've, if they've um, uh, made a mistake or hurt others, the question is, how would it feel if, if you experienced that? How would we feel? In that empathetic and compassionate awareness of how injury feels, asking for forgiveness becomes easier. We're invited to become more and more aware of our impact on others in the world. In the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the the discourse on mindfulness and the four foundations, um, there's a passage that, that supports this, that it says, the noble ones abide contemplating internally, they abide contemplating externally, and they abide contemplating both internally and externally. We become more aware of our impact on others and learn what is the person that I really see myself being in the world? Who do I really want to be? I am in a um, difficult <coughs> conflict with someone right now that actually has to go into mediation. It's quite painful. Um, and so in the process of creating this place of mediation, um, because we're in, in such different places, um, I drafted a, a letter sort of outlining some of the needs and uh, limits that, that I could you know, participate in. And at the end of, of the letter I wrote, um, something like, I'm paraphrasing, I really feel um, the deep integrity of your process and I hope you can feel the integrity of mine. If I have harmed you in any way in this process, uh, I ask for your forgiveness. And if you have harmed me in any way, I forgive you. And then I signed it, you know, many blessings. And so I, I wrote this letter and so I, I wanted to get a reality check. So I, so I um, gave it to another friend to read who's not involved. And um, 
she came back to me and said, you know, Larry, the most powerful piece of the letter was the last paragraph. Why don't you lead with it? And I, and I just, you know, I had this aha experience that, you know, even in my intention to, to ask for forgiveness and to, to be open to the situation of our conflict, I still was hiding a little bit. You know, and I don't know if it, it's, you know, this guy thing, you know, because, you know, I, I really felt, I, I really felt the softness coming from, from a friend who um, uh, was one of my good uh, female friends. And, but it was like, of course I should lead with that paragraph. The third direction is forgiving others who have harmed us. May I forgive you, and if I cannot do so in this moment, may I be able to forgive you in the future. And so you can feel even in those words that the invitation is not the goal. The invitation is the process. That forgiveness is a is a dynamic process, not an expectation. Noticing actually where forgiveness is not possible is part of the practice. But even if it's not possible, inclining the heart to have the intention to forgive as opposed to um, having the intention to match energy with energy. So there's the classic story of two prisoners of war meeting after two or three decades and uh, one of these former prisoners of war um, says to the other, um, have you forgiven your captors? And the other person says, of course not. After what they did? Are you kidding? And so the first person says, so they still have you in prison, don't they? Forgiving isn't about doing something for someone else. But it's actually a piece of our own freedom. And it takes courage. Which Someone um, uh, in, the, in the space of when we're talking about right effort, um, they said that actually effort can be described as a kind of courage. I sometimes give classes on forgiveness at Spirit Rock and at East Bay and, and I always have people write um, their... Um, experiences of their uh, of the word, and so this is what one person wrote. Twenty-one years ago, I was denied a new position not because I wasn't qualified, but they had decided to open the position to the newly graduated, which meant that I was expected to train another person for the position that I wanted. Five years later, I got the position I wanted. <laughs> 
because the management changed, but I still spent many hours dreaming of revenge. I let go of revenge and moved on to holding a grudge. I was lucky he worked across the country, so I didn't have to see him often, but I still had a hard time being civil to him for the rest of the time I worked there, another six years. I let it go at that point, released the pain, but I still dreamed about it. Now, 21 years later, I still haven't forgiven him. I doubt he has even given it a second thought after the first six months. Saying you forgive someone can help them if they are feeling guilt over a past action. However, it is more likely to help you release the revenge and pain and free up your psychic energy for more productive things. My guess is that I've spent 2,000 hours over the years on this issue. Forgiveness takes courage because it's a radical act. It's actually a courageous act to own that story and write it and become aware of it so that they have the choice to do something different. That's the power of our mindfulness practice is that we cannot change anything we're not aware of. Once we become aware of something, there's a choice point. What's going to lead to more happiness or what's going to lead to more suffering? And it's also radical because our cultural conditioning is to meet energy with energy. So I have my own story about Paris. Um, I, one of the reasons I wanted to go to Paris was to go to the Louvre. And um, in the Louvre is the Assyrian stele from Hammurabi. And that is the basis of our Western legal code. And on the translation of that stele, it says, if a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. If he breaks another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To return the same or greater in the, in the instance of injury. That's 4,000 years of cultural conditioning. This is what we have a chance to transform. When there's an injury and that feeling of, how dare you? You can feel that sword being sort of, sort of unleashed. It's not the sword of Manjushri, which is the bodhisattva of wisdom. It's the sword of Mara, wanting that retribution. So why are we conditioned to, to match the energy with energy? I mean, I have my own sort of hypothesis and practice around it. For me, 
this is where the practice of Vedana is so powerful. And some of you may not know that word. It's the second foundation of mindfulness. And it's the noticing of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sensations. That it is said every single life experience we have has only one of those three characteristics. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And what do we do with that? We push away the unpleasant, we want more of the pleasant, and we completely ignore the neutral. So what happens instead of mindfulness? Mindfulness is meeting the moment for what it is. But instead of that gentle awareness, we push it away or we want more of it. And when you're in a position that, 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 that rage or those strong sensations come up, look into it because what I found in my own experience is that when I'm enraged, there are actually pleasant sensations happening. And there's a seduction of wanting more. And so the anger can so easily feed itself unless there's mindfulness. And that's what begins to break that cycle. It's not just about our personal experience that can break this, this cycle that is not just within you know, our own experience, but in our collective experience. It's hard not to be aware of some of the tragedy, the recent tragedy in the world caused by this kind of violence. And right before our retreat started, um, there was that um, really awful... uh, events in Tucson when the um, congresswoman was was um, shot along with with uh, 16 or 17 other people and in the aftermath of that event all of the finger pointing and blame and the that you could feel the national um, conversation the pitch was escalating And so um, our President Obama went um, to Tucson um, two days after, during this retreat. And these are his words that I wanted to share because it break, for me, it's, it speaks to how to break the cycle. For the truth is that none of us can know exactly what triggered this vicious attack. None of us can know with any certainty what might have stopped those shots from being fired or what thoughts lurked in the inner recesses of a violent man's mind. So yes, we must examine all the facts behind this tragedy. We cannot and will not be passive in the face of such violence. We should be willing to challenge old assumptions in order to lessen the prospects of violence in the future. 
but we, we can't do in this tragedy is, but what we can't do is to use this tragedy as one more occasion to turn on one another. As we discuss these issues, let each of us do so with a dose of humility. Rather than pointing fingers or assigning blame, let us use this occasion to expand our moral imaginations, to listen to each other more carefully, to sharpen our instincts for empathy, and to remind ourselves of all the ways our hopes and dreams are bound together. So sudden a loss causes us to look backward, but it also forces us to look forward, to reflect on the present and the future, on the manner in which we live our lives and nurture our relationships with those who are still with us. We may ask ourselves if we've shown enough kindness, generosity, and compassion to the people in our lives. We recognize our own mortality and are reminded that in the fleeting time we have on this earth, what matters is not wealth or status or power or fame, but rather how well we have loved and what small part we've played in bettering the lives of others. Forgiveness expands our moral imagination. I think that's a brilliant term to use. In, um, in the tragedy of that Tucson event, it reminded me of um, other tragedies that, um, have, that have also occurred. And, but this one caught when it came out during the time of Virginia Tech, it caught all of my attention. Shortly after the carnage of Virginia Tech, 32 makeshift headstones appeared on the campus commemorating the victims. Four days after the shooting, a 33rd headstone was added, memorializing the gunman. An accompanying note read, I am sorry you did not get what you needed. Not forgiving the act, but seeing the humanity of each being. And of course, you know that this process, this dynamic process, this living process necessarily has its ebb and flow. It necessarily has its open periods of openness and places of contraction. And that is it possible to be okay with that too? That there are times in which we can, even for the same injury or the same circumstance, be open to seeing that humanity. And then sometimes we can't. And being, just holding the 
the longitudinal um, aspect of forgiveness. That has that it has its own time. That it's not about us wanting to be somewhere where we're not. But really meeting our own lives for where they are. The intention to forgive moment to moment is like the intention to be awake moment to moment. Small moments many times. That's something that many teachers have referred to. And really, you know, as sometimes um, warm and fuzzy or or um, sweet that the ideal can be, it's hard. No illusions. And so I, I really wanted to explore the difficulties or the, the, um, uh, um, the complications of forgiveness. And so I went into some of the, the Buddhist um, psychological texts um, because forgiveness isn't, um, isn't really talked about all that much unless it's in the, in the practice of letting go or renunciation. And so in, in the Buddhist psychology, there are 52 possible mind states. This is, I mean, you know, you don't have to buy it. You don't have to believe it. But they just have 52. <laughs> 14 of them are, are um, uh, not beneficial. Uh, greed, hatred, delusion, you know. Um, uh, uh, there are 25 beautiful mind states, that those mind states actually lead to liberation or awakening. And so as I read through the list, I figured out that I needed all 25. (laughs) That, you know, if I had, if I was missing one, it would make my forgiveness practice less. So no wonder it's such a complicated process. So just to read these, these beautiful mind states include faith, generosity, mindfulness, loving kindness, non-attachment, hesitation and fear of doing harm, balance of mind, tranquility, spaciousness, flexibility, adaptability, Strength, wise speech, wise action, appreciative joy, compassion, and wisdom. No wonder it's hard. But the, the good news is, is that our practice cultivates all of them to support us in this process. Greta Crosby, who is a Unitarian Universalist minister, says, forgiveness is one word, but not one act alone. It is the process we live through in order to restore a relationship. Forgiveness is the process of coming back together again with another or with oneself after a separation of wrongdoing or grievous shortcoming. 
Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is anchoring a wrong in its own time, letting it recede into the past as we live and move towards the future. Um, I'm coming up, my family is coming up um, on the first anniversary of my father's passing. And he had, um, um, he had cancer the last years of his life. But the, um, uh, about a year before he passed, he still was mobile and, and um, able to get around. And, and so we decided to have a celebration of one of my cousin's 70th birthday. And um, for Chinese celebrations, you know, we get around food and we get around a circular table for a banquet and and at this table there's my father who is fading and has a life you know terminal uh, um, illness um, there was uh, a young boy who it was a relative that had behavioral problems and would not speak to anybody at the table and <laughs> We had another one of my cousins who um, is was in the middle stages of Alzheimer's, and and um, uh, I don't know if you know the the Mushu pork uh, uh, ritual that you have a pancake and and you you wrap it up, and she started loving that for some reason for the first time in her life, and we ran out of pancakes, and we we turned around and we saw her take a napkin <laughs> because she thought it was the pan and and we kept saying no grace no grace and my father is sitting there and he turns to me and he says i do not ever want to be with him or her <laughs> again in my life and i said okay Okay, so this was like spring of that year. Come September, I, I can feel that he knows he's, he's going to be leaving us. And so he comes to me and, and he says, I want to plan your mother's birthday, which is in September. And he gave me a list of everybody to invite. And these people were on it. <laughs> I said, What's going on? And he said, you know, I'm 93. I'm old. I have to let go. <laughs> do it before I have to do it. It reminds me of um, uh, the wisdom of Maury Schwartz, who um, uh, was an educator and had Lou Gehrig's disease. He, he wrote, forgive yourself before you die and then forgive others. Dying is one, only one thing to be sad about. Living unhappily is something else. And that's what my father, I think, was experiencing. And that really leads to the fourth direction of this practice. And that is just forgiving the difficulty, the pain, the suffering, the loss, 
that we inevitably experience in this lifetime. This is the reality of the first noble truth. The invitation is to bring our collective practice of mindfulness and loving kindness and forgiveness to all the situations in the world and our lives that we are out of our control. The illness, the dying, the violence, the tragedy, the trauma, the oppression, the racism, of course we would not design the world this way. And we can create conditions for its improvement, but we cannot change the present moment. The Buddha's teaching is about causes and effects. In this retreat, in our practice, we are living the causes the causes that seed future effects. Usually, we just want to live the effects, right? We want the outcome to be here. But we're actually creating the seeds of our future liberation. And that, I'm not going to have time to talk about it, but that longitudinal aspect of our practice in forgiveness is supported by patience, allowing that to unfold. This forgiving the pain of our lives is not just about our own individual experience. It is a cultural experience. It is a collective experience. It is a human experience. In 1995, conservationists were about to close on a 10,000-acre ranch in eastern Oregon and convey it to the Bureau of Land Management. Just six weeks before the closing, the project manager, Bowen Blair, for the trust of the public land, got a call from Jamie Pinkham, a member of the Nez Perce Nation. Jamie relates that this piece of property contained the cave in which their ancestral leader, Chief Joseph, was born. At the end of the last great war between the U.S. cavalry and and an Indian nation, Chief Joseph was the one who made the statement, Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more. The Nez Perce had very little money, but a whole lot of history and connection to the land. The conversation changed both men. However, that personal transformation was insufficient to heal what occurred to an Indian nation over generations of oppression. So they started two years of complex negotiations which triggered impacts across many different communities. One can quickly imagine the value of this effort to the Nez Perce people, but what did it ask of the white ranchers who had come to dominate this land since before the times of the Indian Wars? 
for a people who were forcibly removed from their land five generations ago, becoming a good neighbor required incredible acts of forgiveness and compassion. However, the return of the Nez Perce to their precious lands proved transformational to others as well. From that forgiveness, the largely white community of Enterprise, Oregon, felt the same lessons and started, and think, started thinking and acting differently. The community became deeply divided over the appropriateness of the high school's mascot called the Savages. Armed guards were required at Board of Education meetings and in the end it was the vote of the students who prevailed and the community began to sandblast the Indian symbol from the school's walls. In June of 1997, the Trust for Public Land was able to convey to the Nez Perce Nation 10,300 acres in the heart of its ancestral homeland of Northeast Oregon. It was 120 years after Chief Joseph and his people were driven off their land. Three years later, the Nez Perce entered into a remarkable partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Cattlemen's Association to reintroduce the wolf. Three years after that, came the most amazing change of all, their ability to deal morally and practically with one of the most difficult issues of the West, the control of water. The Nez Perce joined with white ranchers and irrigators to voluntarily reduce the amount of water flowing to ranches so that salmon could be restored to local rivers an initiative that shares the control of the river and makes partners with the salmon. There is deep pain in this world and there is also deep healing beyond even what we think might be possible. Healing not just of our human relationships but even with the animal kingdom that really connects us with the meaning of the universal family. The suffering of wanting things to be other than they are asks, why me? Why do I have this pain in this life? The courage, the heart, of forgiveness asks, who else? Who else can live this one beautiful, precious, painful life? Who else can navigate the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows and come to the experience that our freedom is not dependent on any of that? I, won't, I would not be the person I am today without all of the pain and the sorrows that I've gone through. You would not be the people you are today without experiencing every single joy and every single sorrow that you have ever experienced. 
we would not be in this room today without all of those experiences. In spite of whatever difficulties we have gone through, we've created beautiful lives. Just feel your way into this room of creating peace, of creating kindness. We are expanding our moral imaginations. We are transforming violence and tragedy right here. That is beautiful. And that beauty, despite any adversity that we have ever gone through, has another word, and that's called freedom. That freedom is possible in this life. Our practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of our freedom. We are creating moments of freedom for ourselves, for our loved ones, for the entire world and worlds yet to be. That is the magnitude of this practice. That is the great journey we are all on. And the Buddha said that he wouldn't teach that which we could not do, that freedom is possible. May we all be free. <laughs>